can turn tonight in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 3. Joshua chapter 3. And the first in a series of prayerfully faith-building messages found here in the book of Joshua. And what we've seen up to this point in time is this incredible leader who's gathered together the children of Israel. They have wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. Forty years before, they got to this nearly the same place at Kadesh Barnea, and they failed to enter in from lack of faith. They, they would not do what God asked them to do. They refused to heed the word of the Lord to go in and possess the land. And now we come back some 40 years later to a time and a place to where the people have suffered for 40 years the wilderness wanderings. Now, I can tell you in my own life, I've spent a little time wandering in the wilderness, both really in the wilderness and figuratively, spiritually in the wilderness. I have hiked most of this state from one end to the other, I've spent time in some of the most beautiful places that we have in this wonderful state. I've also trekked across virtually every inch of desert that we have here. And I can tell you there's a whole lot of nothing out there, unless you include the desert tortoises, and they don't say much. The southern part of Israel is very much like the Mojave Desert, except it's a little more barren. It has less vegetation, if you can imagine. Now, when you're driving, and again, you have to go that way if you're going to go, you know, across to Nevada and up into Utah or maybe to Colorado, you've got to go across the desert. For those of you who've had the joy of traveling to the scenic town of Zizix or Yermo or Baker with the world's largest thermometer, uh, when you're out there, that's not exactly a place where you could imagine a million-plus people camping. Amen? Especially a million-plus people camping with virtually no food supplies available to you. That is the picture that you have of the Jews coming from the wilderness wandering. So they have wandered in the desert of sin, Sinai. They spent time in the most inhospitable place on planet Earth for 40 years. They've kind of learned their lesson. That's the whole point of the wilderness from God's perspective. It's not where he wants you to live. It's where you choose to live. And in choosing to live there, you get what living in the wilderness will get you which is a whole bunch of nothing. And so as they're in the wilderness, they have now had the opportunity to say, you know what, I'm kind of sick of manna. I am really tired of the blazing, burning desert heat. I'm sick to death of the nasty-tasting water that we can find in the pools that are in the rocks in this desolate place. I'd kind of like to be by a stream of living water. And you see, that is supposed to happen in our lives when we find ourselves in the wilderness. It's supposed to 
the light go on, and it's like, I'd like out of here, and I would really like to be refreshed. They have reached that place in their lives. And Joshua's going to lead them in. And so tonight, as we begin chapter 3, they begin by stepping out in faith. And so would you pray with me? Father, thanks for this time tonight. Thank you for your blessings and your goodness, Lord. Thanks for rescuing us out of the wilderness ourselves. And we pray tonight as we study your word that you would just speak to us through it, that it would be power, that it would give us strength, that we would, Lord, take it in, that we might not sin against you, that we'd walk, Lord, according to your ways. So many beautiful things contained in tonight's chapter, and we pray that you would just impart them to us now as your truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 here in Joshua 3, And then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from the Acacia Grove. This is Abel Shittim. It's a little tiny settlement. Uh, it's actually on the Jordanian side of the Jordan River today. Uh, if you look at a map of Israel and you look at the Dead Sea, take the north end of the Dead Sea. If you travel about eight miles north and about seven miles to the east, uh, it, it's in the region that is uh, largely right now being farmed by the Jordanians. So it was a fertile plain. It was actually the translation here of the original Hebrew words was the meadow of Acacia. And so if you know anything about the acacia tree, the acacia tree grows just about anywhere and in anything. It will grow in solid rock. It will grow in sand. It takes desert heat. You find it on the African continent. You find it in this area of Asia. We even have them here. And when you bump into them, uh, you're going to know them because they have very, very fine leaves, uh, a little bit finer than a pepper tree, and they have thorns about this long. Uh, that's the reason they survive out there in the middle of nowhere, because nothing, nowhere will eat them. But they're really kind of a tall bush at times, and so this this grove of acacias is really a bunch of trees that are about 10 to 12 feet high, and they bush out and branch out along the ground, and the people of the nation of Israel are gathered around this large acacia grove. They're prepared. It's during the spring flood season. And if you, again, look at a map of Israel and you look at the north and you see where Mount Hermon is at 11,000 feet plus, the Jordan River finds its tributaries emanating from there, travels down to the Dan River, becomes the Jordan itself, goes to the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Gennesaret, and then travels another 35 miles until it reaches uh, into the Dead Sea. And in that floodplain in the spring, though the normal time of the year when you look at the River Jordan, it's someplace between 30 and about 100 feet wide. But during this time of the year, that river can be more than a mile wide because it overflows its banks. It's not horribly deep, but it is a force to be reckoned with. It no longer does that because of all the water that's pulled off for irrigation. But the evidence of that alluvial plain is the River Jordan could easily have been at least a mile wide at the time these words were written. And so picture that in your head. You're in a nearly desert wasteland. It's filled with kind of bushy desert-type trees. You have a million people camped out, and they are getting ready to go into the land that God has provided for them as an inheritance. And so we pick up the story. And they came to the Jordan, which would have been about a, 
uh, at least a half day's walk, seven miles or so. And he and all of the children of Israel, and they lodged there before they crossed over. And so they've moved this six or seven miles to the Jordan River. It is another six or seven miles over to Jericho. And so this span of anywhere between 12 and 14 miles, depending on which way you triangulate the distances, uh, is this distance that must be covered before they can get to where they need to go, where Rahab, we just left, her personal faith there in the city of Jericho. And now we're going to look at their corporate faith. And it was after three days that the officers went through the camp and they commanded the people saying, and I want you to circle or underline that word commanded. There are times when God speaks in his grace and gives us options. And there is times when God speaks by his word and gives us no option. It comes as a command. There are things that God does not find negotiable. And he is very clear on those things that are not negotiable. And so when we talk about, well, you know, do I really need to be obedient? Uh, if you want the blessing of the Lord and the inheritance of the Lord, you better believe you need to uh, adhere to the commands of the Lord. And so in this case... They are going to be commanded. They're not going to be asked, well, do you, do you want to go? Is it something that you think you might want to do? They are going to receive the command. And they commanded the people, saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of your Lord God and the priests and the Levites bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. And yet there shall be a space between you and it of about 2,000 cubits by measure. That's the better part of a half a mile. At that time, remember what has not happened. The Lord Jesus Christ has not come to the earth. He is not Emmanuel. He has not gone to the cross. He has not died. He has not torn the veil in two. They cannot get near the holiness of God save the high priest. And that only on the day of Yom Kippur could he get near the Ark of the Covenant. And thereby, when he got near the Ark of the Covenant, because it was over the Ark of the Covenant that the glory of God rested, so the people were able to glimpse afar the power of the glory of God. And in this case, about a half a mile away, and remember that the Ark of the Covenant was only about three feet long and about two feet wide and stood about three and a half to four feet tall. And so this was not a huge thing. So put something the size of, say, the box that your microwave came in a half a mile away, and you can imagine what the view was from the children of Israel. And so when you see it, uh, that's your time to move. But do not come near it that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. You've not been led by the presence of God before. God has done miracles in your midst. He did that when they crossed the Red Sea, but they had never before because the ark was built, remember, in the wilderness. It was there that they got the first glimpse of God dwelling with his people. And so now this is the first time that the ark is going to go before them and actually accomplish great things for the children of Israel. 
And so in a moment, we'll get to what's contained in there. And as you study this, you kind of have to look at these details this way. Um, Yes, it's the history of the children of Israel, the Jewish people's story. But it really is a picture of our life as well. Because I can tell you a secret to spiritual success. Don't go unless the Lord has gone before you. Don't get outside of the will of God. And when God speaks, you must do. And so the picture here is the people of the Lord stepping out in faith. And they were about to experience the first victory of corporate faith. They were going to see God work as a people, not just individually. And he was going to do that with his presence uh, there before them. And and as you look at the things that go on in this chapter, uh, it, it becomes this victorious story of what can happen when people actually do what God tells them to do. And and I would just say to you that as we sit here tonight, probably one of the most difficult things in our lives is to remain faithful to do the things God's called us to do. It's real easy to just kind of go up and down in your faith. It's like, well, one day I'm in the spirit, and the next day I'm kind of in the flesh. Uh, One day I'm kind of sort of walking in the spirit, which is the same thing as not. And I'm mostly in the flesh, which is the same thing as being completely in the flesh. You see, we're either led by the Spirit or we're not led by the Spirit. And in fact, they are opposed to one another, and you cannot be simultaneously in both. That's called being double-minded. Scripture is clear that you cannot walk in the Spirit and in the flesh because those two things are opposed to one another. They're actually at war. So you're one or the other. You're either in the Spirit or not in the Spirit. Now the good news is, is by walking in the Spirit, it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be faultless and blameless and perfect, but it means you have the best chance of success in walking in this world. And you have the worst chance of success by trying to do it in your own strength, by your flesh. And so it's a picture of stepping out in faith. And as you look at this concept... There's really a couple of things as you look at the book of Hebrews. Very similar story, really, in the book of Hebrews regarding faith. But the way to get forward, the way to go forward, the way to move on is to go forward in faith for us as the body of Christ. Uh, Something you probably have guessed by now, I don't have all the answers. I don't know exactly everything God wants everybody to do. Matter of fact, sometimes I have a tough time discerning what it is that God wants me to do. I, every once in a while, have to sit there and be like, Lord, where are you in this? I must walk by faith. And you're going to see in the latter part of this chapter that it is the role of those who bear the word of the Lord to set the example by taking the first step and saying, Lord, you told us to go. I'm putting my foot in the water. I'm going to dare to get wet. A lot of people don't want to take that first step. That's where these principles come in. You see, unbelief says, let's go back where it's safe. Okay? You get the picture? That's what unbelief does. And I can give you some examples of that. Let's go back to that old job. Let's go back to the bank account, because the bank account surely can take care of us. Let's go back to the things that we know by our minds. Let's go back to, for me, the spreadsheet. Let's go back to the plan. 
Let's go back to these things that are safe. Let's go back to where we once were, where we knew what we were doing, and we'll just stay there. Now, there are times in wisdom that going to a place that you know to be of the Lord is a okay thing to do. But you, as a Christian, are either going to be moving forward in faith, or at very best, you're going to be stagnant by standing still. But very often, you're going to be going backwards. And so faith says, let's go where God is. Let's go where he's working. Let's go see what God's doing. And the children of Israel had to learn that lesson because they had spent so much time in unbelief that they had no idea how to walk in faith. And this is where it touches our lives. When people first come to Christ, they have no idea how to walk in faith. They've never experienced those things in the Lord. They've simply lived lives that were largely in the flesh, if not completely in the flesh. Maybe a little touch of the Spirit's influence here or there, but certainly not by the Spirit have they walked. And so they're now in this new place of, you want me to do what? When, When people first hear the voice of the Lord in their everyday lives, they're kind of like, well, I'm not sure whether that was Mexican food or God. I, I, I don't know whether, you know, it's just my friend giving me some good ideas or whether that was God. And so tuning your spiritual antenna. Some of us in the room are old enough to remember having rabbit ears on the top of our black and white TVs. Amen? You remember that little gig and you'd go out there and, you know, especially with us who lived in San Diego because we got the fourth channel, channel 39. We had 6, 8, and 10, all even numbers. And channel 39, if you took your rabbit ears and you just kind of tweaked them, you could kind of actually sort of tell it was human beings on the TV. That's the way the Spirit works. You kind of have to tune your spiritual antenna to find out where it is that God's at, what He's doing, where He wants you to go. It isn't just automatic that you turn on your set of your life and those things happen. You've got to do some adjusting. And so be kind to yourselves in understanding that maybe you're going to embark a little bit and you're going to need to tweak your antenna. Some of us also had the the glories of the marvelous antenna on your roof. If you were really, if you were wealthy, you had an antenna on your roof. And if you were really well off, you had a motorized antenna. And you could sit in your living room. There was a cable that went up through your wall up to, and it had a, and it'd be like, you know, and you could actually, this huge. 15 foot long antenna and you would turn it and then when you finally got to where the station actually was which in our case all of them were in San Diego south of where we lived in Poway you would point it near the station's emanating signal and boom there it was it's kind of a picture of faith so sometimes you kind of don't know where the Lord's at work you got to listen and that happens by faith working through the word of God through your prayer life through the confirmation of witnesses, and through the literal work of the Spirit in your life. And so you get tuned in by these things. These people had never had that experience. They had no clue. And so now they're going to step out in faith. Before they'd said, there's giants in the land. Now it's, let's go possess it. And when you exercise your faith, you're going to test and exactly see what you're made out of in the Lord. 
I guarantee you at the Red Sea, not everybody was standing on the shore going, wow, cool, we'll just walk right through. Some of them were likely looking at the walls of water on either side going, man, if anything happens, we're all dead. That's your humanness speaking. But you know what happened? After that long train of people reached the other side, you started to be able to draw on the faith of the people that already made it. And that's where senior saints come into our lives. Those of us that have walked with the Lord for a long time, we're supposed to be able to say, hey, it's going to be okay, follow me. Been through this canyon of water before. Stuck my foot in the water before. It's going to be okay. Doesn't mean you're not going to have some things that happen that you're not going to be able to explain. But it does mean, look, I know God is who He says He is. And so let's go this way. You see, all of the evidence had been to the contrary of God's working by faith. And so we see uh, here in these first 13 verses kind of the word of the faith of the Lord speaking to them. And as you look at especially the book of Romans, uh, you just see this focus, this emphasis on the Word of God. And so the Lord is going to give several messages that are based on the Word of God, the character of God, the power of God, God Himself. And it's so important that we get this as we move on. Because if these promises are simply based on history or geography, or in this case, meteorology, maybe a little bit of, you know, seismologies. People say, well, you must have been an earthquake that damned it. You know, they make all these fanciful, couldn't God just simply do a miracle and hold the water back? I believe he can. He created the universe and everything in it. By the word of his mouth, I'm pretty sure he can hold back a river. But people, wow, you know, he did this. Okay, let's give him that. All right, so God used his control of the things that he created to stop the River Jordan. But it took faith to step out in front of that flood. Amen? How many of you have ever gone the back way down either out of Big Bear or through Crestline when it's raining? That's an unpleasant experience, isn't it? You get down there in the in the desert and it's been pouring rain and the flash floods are going and you're driving, you're just going, oh, this is awesome. And then all of a sudden, why, are, why is there brown water in my windows? And you realize you've just driven through this dry creek bottom that now has four feet of water in it. And it's moving. And all of a sudden your car's going a direction you're not steering it. Water's pretty powerful. It doesn't matter that it's only this deep. It's a mile wide. So it's quite capable of sweeping them away. So there was a real sense that God had to do something to spare them. Family of God, when we see the Lord at work best, it's in things that we cannot explain. It's in things that don't look like they're even possible. We don't see the Lord at work as much when it's just the everyday things. That's why we take them for granted. But when he saves your life from some situation, when he works in a way to miraculously provide for you, when he does something that is truly miraculous, you're going, faith builder. Amen? And so several messages here that they're going to get in Hebrews chapter 11, that great role of faith, that hall of faith, the hall of fame of faith, whatever you want to call it, you, you see Abraham, you see Moses, we get the picture of Gideon, all these wonderful 
men of God, we, we find Rahab, we, we get the picture that to really be used of the Lord, you've got to have faith in God. Not faith in me, not faith in the church, not faith in Calvary Chapel, not faith in the giant body of Christ, faith in God himself. Remember, faith must have an object. And so the first message is the officer's message to the people. It's contained in these verses we've already seen. And notice how Joshua rises up early. He says, look, the, the day's half dead at noon, okay? Let's get up early and go and go look. And the Ark of the Covenant is there, and they're going to follow it across. And it's important for you to remember what's inside the Ark of the Covenant. Because the outside is very wonderful in its own figurative way. Because on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark was actually the box. But the lid was literally the dwelling place of God. And so there were two cherubims bent over facing one another. And in between them was the mercy seat. That was the place that the high priest sprinkled the blood of the offering and, and, and cried out that the sins of the people would be espunged. It was there that the blood of the scapegoat was placed, that one that, that as the scapegoat was sent away into the wilderness, the one that was sacrificed in its place, its blood was put there. And so this beautiful picture of forgiveness is on the top of the ark. But inside the ark, there were three things. One of them was the Ten Commandments, the two tablets that Moses brought down from the mountain, the Word. Amen? Okay, so you have the Word of God. That's His promises, amen? The second thing you had there was the pot of manna. As they were in the wilderness, God provided for them miraculously. So you have the promises of God, and you have the provision of God. The third thing was Aaron's rod that budded. Three things. The promises of God, the provision of God, and the power of God. All three inside the Ark of the Covenant with the presence of God sitting on top of it. So the presence of God contains the promises of God, it contains the power of God, and it contains the provision of God. So as you look at this Ark going forward, it's a picture actually of, guess who? Jesus Christ. The finished work. Because in Him we are complete. Amen? In Him we have the power of God. In Him we have the provision of God. In Him we have the... He is the Word, is He not? So it is in Him. And in Him we have forgiveness. What happened at the mercy seat? Forgiveness of sin. In Him we have the presence of God. It is His likeness. He was Emmanuel, God with His people. Present with His people. So the Ark of the Covenant was a picture of Jesus Christ going before the people. The finished work that would come much later in their history. And so with the people, as the ark went forward, they were supposed to move. That was fresh new ground for them. Look at what happens next, the second message. You guys need to get your act cleaned up. Verse 5, And Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourselves. Period. Sanctify yourselves. Why? 
For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. If you want to see the wonders of God, you must sanctify yourself. There is no dipping your life in the trash of this earth and then expecting God to do wonders. You can't do it. You couldn't then, and you surely can't do by grace. Paul addressed that. He says, what then? Should we go on sinning that grace might abound? He answers his own question and says, heaven forbid. Of course not. And so for the people, Joshua said, look, here's the command. Get cleaned up. Now for the Jews and in this place, that was actually a very difficult thing to do in a practical way in a Jewish sense. Because what they would do at that time under Jewish law, if you were defiled by anything, you were required as whether a man or a woman to go, it's known as a mikveh. And that's nothing more than a hole in the ground, generally speaking, normally with some steps, usually hewn out of rock, and it would be filled with water. It would be roughly chest deep on an average human being. You would go, you would offer up a prayer of repentance, you would then enter into the water, you would then pull your legs up to your chest as if you were in the fetal position, allowing yourself to dunk underneath the water, signifying you were brand new. Guess who this sounds like? It's what Jesus does for us, right? So it's all symbolic. He says, sanctify yourself. Be renewed in your mind, as the book of Romans says. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, as your Bible says. Be transformed. Sanctify yourself, which means to be made saintly or holy. Be holy, for he is holy. He says, get right with me. Because if you expect me to do marvelous things in your presence, we got to do them my way. You don't get to drag your junk with you while Jesus is working. It's got to go. That is a lost part of Christianity in our day and time. A lot of people think that you can just take, keep your junk and Jesus too. That's where the Lordship of Jesus Christ comes in. And this is not to, to defile the grace of God by works. This is to say that if you really want what God wants for you, you've got to do it His way. And that means cleaning your act up. That means putting on the new man and putting off the old. That means committing yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the mastery of Jesus. And so he says, sanctify yourselves. You know, we're, we're accustomed. Have you ever been through the Home Depot showerhead section? My goodness, you go in there and it's like, I didn't even know they had showerheads that had 740 holes in them. You know, it's like now you have them on the walls and you got them on the ceiling and you got them on your feet and you walk in there and it's like, you feel like you've gone through one of those car washes at the Chevron station. It's like instantaneous. You see, we're used to that kind of hygiene. They were not used to that. In fact, very often they did not bathe sometimes for months on end. Only when they wanted to be right with God was it so important as to go to the mikveh. Because it was far more important to be clean in here than it was out here. So for them... This was a spiritual command. It was signified by an actual bath. 
But it was a spiritual command. Get right with me. And of course we know, because your Bible says so, that we're made holy, we are sanctified there in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 26, by the washing of the water of the Spirit by the Word. Amen? So that happens to us in a spiritual sense. As we take in the Word, the Spirit then transforms and washes our lives. So you get the picture? If you want to see miracles in your life, if you want to see God do big things in your life, then get right with God. Clean it up. Wash it. Take in the Word. Study it. Be cleansed. And of course, this carries over into our time. If you remember, even in David's case there in Second Samuel, you remember he sinned with Bathsheba. What did he do? He went in and washed himself, and then he went into the house of the Lord. He got right personally with God, and then he went and got right with God corporately. He said, look, I'm going to go in and I'm going to settle down with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And it's a picture of how God makes all things new. Amen? Because let's face it, these bodies, you don't, they don't get remade, okay? This is what you got. And at the end of your life, it's going to be worn out. It's that simple. But he's not looking at just the outside. Because as worn out as this is, this can get better every day. This can get better every day. Your mind renewed, your heart cleansed and purified. That's why David cried out, said, Give me a new heart, O God, that I might not sin against you. Cleanse me, redeem me, wash me. Isaiah said, make me white as wool. You ever seen a sheep? You ever seen a white one? They're kind of dirty, huh? You know what you got to do to get them white? Wash and wash and wash and wash. After you've shaved them about 40 times. Get that new hair and you kind of put them on sticks so they can't get near anything? That's the picture. It's a process. And you do it over and over and over again until you finally end up white as wool. Cleaned up. And one day, praise God, whole garment of praise, amen? Completely white. We will be one day as He is already. Perfect, holy, righteous. Not just internally with those things happening to us right now, but externally as well. The next message, look at this. And, and as I shared with you, some of God's condition, promises are conditional. Some of them uh, are unconditional. And so as you look at these things, uh, notice Joshua's message now to the people. He, he just says, look, you can't follow unless you get right with me. And so that next thing we see is that picture of what he said to the priests. And then Joshua in verse 6 spoke to the priests saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant. Now remember, this is serious business, okay? The Ark of the Covenant had poles of acacia wood that were run through gold rings on the side of it. You were not allowed to touch it. There were a specific group of Levites that carried the Ark of the Covenant, the holiness of God. It was believed that they were eunuchs. They were sexually pure. It was the only thing they did. And they carried it on staves or wooden wooden poles so that they did not touch the Ark of the Covenant. There's one excellent case that comes up that it actually slips and one of them reaches out to touch it and he dies instantaneously. 
And so this is God's presence. They're not even allowed to be there. It's only the high priest that can be in the presence of God. And so as they're carrying it, this takes a lot of faith because that's not even ground across that valley floor. And it's a long ways. And so if that thing starts rocking and slipping, the guys on the other side drop it. It's a picture of how the church functions. We are one body, but many pieces. Amen. And we have to function that way. You need to do your part. I need to do mine. And so he gives this this picture to the priest. He says, Joshua speaks to the priest saying, take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Do you see any, well, maybe in there? No, they just did it. God spoke. Joshua was speaking to them. They took the command as if it came from the Lord and they went and did it. Can I tell you, it's somewhat irritating when I tell people what God's word says and they say, well, that's that's good for you. It happens. I don't believe it. I have people look me right in the eye and say, I don't believe it. Or they say, I'm going to be the exception. I know it says that about other people, but not for me. Because I'm the special one. I'm the special child. God's Word says what God's Word says. We do what God's Word says. My job is not to make a new interpretation. My, God, my job is to observe the text, rightly interpret it, and give you what God said. That's it. In order to do that, I need to do it first. I need to walk by faith first. I need to pick up the Ark of the Covenant. Remember who that is. That's Jesus. Jesus needs to be in me. He needs to be my hope of glory. And I need to get moving. Any pastor that's unwilling to step out in faith is also not worthy to be followed. Because if you can't walk in faith, you can't lead other people in walking in faith. And your Bible says we walk by faith, not by sight. And in fact, if we only walk by sight, we deceive ourselves. And so what Scripture says is the job of the priest in our day and time, that happens to be me. I hate being called those types of things. And actually, you all are priests and kings in the coming kingdom. So get ready because your time's coming. But in a, in a picture, this is the pastor saying, look, I want to give them the promises of God. Remember what's in there. I want to give them the power of God. I want to give them the provision of God. And I want them to see the salvation of God. And I want them to see the presence of God. So the priests say, look, follow me as I follow Christ. Isn't that what Paul said to Timothy? Follow me as I follow Christ. So this is a picture of stepping out in faith with the word of God before them. Notice... The, this, the wonder of this, the, the message now of the Lord that comes to Joshua. And he says in verse 7, And the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel. you know why he says that? Because he's going to be a godly leader. And it doesn't mean that Joshua takes God's place. It means that Joshua represents God well. And so that exaltation doesn't come from people, it comes from God. At the end of the day, any pastor that's a man-pleaser is also not worthy to be followed. Because I have to be concerned, every pastor has to be concerned with what God thinks 
not what the congregation thinks, providing that the congregation isn't talking about the pastor being in sin. That's absolutely. But in this sense, as, the, as, as Joshua, who's telling the priest this is what God said, the priests are taking that absolute authority that God has given Joshua and saying, look, let's go do it, then the Lord lifts them up. You have to be able to step out in that kind of bold faith in the ministry. That they may know that, notice this, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. The same God that was with Moses is with us. Amen? His word declares he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? He is the Alpha, which is the first letter, and the Omega, which is the last letter. Amen? He's the beginning and the end. He is the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. Amen? Even the power of the Spirit is expressed in that which was before, that which is here present, and that which will be afterwards. And so everything we know about God shows utter consistency from Genesis to Revelation. There is no difference in God's character. He was the same then as he is now, and the same as he will be in eternity. And you shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you have come to the edge of the water in the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. Now, there are two things about water in the New Testament that are from the Old Testament. And when the enemy comes like a flood, it can be like a flood of nations. It can be as a evil thing. And in this case, this was the flood stage of the Jordan River. So they were representing the Lord by standing in the flood, that which was coming against the children of Israel. They had boldness to step out and put their feet in the floodwaters. We need leaders like that in the church today. They will say, the flood's coming. It's mighty. It's wide the flood of political correctness and all these social ills to which the Bible speaks very authoritatively, we need pastors who will put their feet in the water and say, thus says the Lord. Period. Irregardless of what the world wants to do, where they think they should go, because it's the nice way. It's the more kind approach, the more tolerant approach, or the more... Yeah, inclusive is one of the great buzzwords of our day. It's more inclusive. That's like saying it's more filthy. And I'm not mocking that statement. I'm saying that's what it means. It means we just bring everything in. little secret, take your glass of water, take your favorite chemical detergent and put one drop in there, the whole cup of water's ruined. Amen? So... If you keep adding the detergent, pretty much, pretty much you're going to have detergent. That's the picture of water getting dirty, period. Same thing is true with mud, a little bit of mud. It's muddy, amen? It can just get darker. That's what's happening in our world. And a lot of it's because the pastors that occupy the pulpits of churches will not stand up and put their feet in the water. You see, both Moses and Joshua received their authority from the Lord, and they got their stature from God. That's effective leadership. Because if you're looking for those things from people, there is no governing body on earth that can give you what God already is. Period. He is who He is. 
That's why there's a very huge difference between a simple ordination of somebody by an organization, which we do here, by the way. We ordain our pastors, but it's because they've already been proven to be approved by God as workmen, rightly dividing the word of truth. There is no process that you can go through that will make you a pastor if you have not been anointed by God. Joshua's second message to the people. And so Joshua said to the children of Israel there in verse 9, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. Whose word? The word of the Lord your God. So when I tell you that don't blame me, I'm just simply repeating the word of the Lord your God, that's what I mean. Joshua literally was spoken to by God, and then he repeated it back to the people. God has already spoken to us in times past by the authors of what we hold in our hand called our Bible. He's already done that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It stood up to criticism for 2,000 years and stands here before us today as God's inerrant word. I simply read it, repeat it back to you. Try and give it sense and meaning. Put it into a little bit of a modern context so you can understand it in light of our society. But it's still just his word. It's always been his word. He preached. There's another way to look at it. And Joshua said, by this you shall know that the living God is among you. You see the emphasis where he puts it? It's on God. It's not on the messenger. Amen? It wasn't just some kind of, you know, oorah pep talk. It was, look, this is what God's word says. This is who he is. We're going to do this because this is right. It makes it easy on us who have pastoral calling. If I just stick to the word... In a practical sense, that makes my job easy because I don't need to interpret this. It already does that for itself. It says what it says. It means what it says. I can simply say, thus says the Lord. Here it is. You can do it, not do it. The choice is yours. You can like it. You can not like it. You can love it. You can not love it. The choice is yours, but it says what it says. Why? Because I want you to know that this is the living God and he's among you. That he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, and the Girgashites. And then all of the Amorites, the Jebusites. You see what he does is he takes all of these people that as far as the Jews were concerned, these were their mortal enemies. And they had been unsuccessful in fighting that battle. Every time they had gone up against them, because remember, Asher and Manasseh had been in the land already. They were actually settled in that region. That's where they were. And they had been fighting against these people now for 400 years, and they had been unsuccessful in that battle. The 40 years of wilderness wandering, these people had been scattered out into that land and and trying to occupy, and it didn't work. The weapons of man's warfare, the arm of flesh, could not sustain them. That's why when you, when you read the story of the great King Hezekiah, if you, if you like the history of the Jewish people, Second Chronicles is filled with it. There in the 32nd chapter, in verse 7, it says, Be strong. Heard that one before. Amen. Here in the book of Joshua. Already. Be courageous. Heard that one before. Here in the book of Joshua. Amen. Why? Because in him we, we can be strong. We can be courageous. Do not be afraid or be dismayed before the king of Assyria. Remember where we started with Amos and Hosea prophesying that the Assyrians would come? King Hezekiah got to see it come to fruition. 
before all the multitude that's with him, that river, that humanity river. For there is more with us than with them. You plus God, as D.L. Moody said, is a majority. Amen? 100% of the time. If God in you is the hope of glory, if he, he is truly who he says he is, which he is, King of kings, Lord of lords, creator God, then God by himself is sufficient. So you plus God is actually a majority, is it not? With him, speaking of the king of Assyria, is the arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God. You, you see, what Joshua was saying is, look, you got a choice here who you want to have rule over you. You can either have the arm of flesh or you can hand, have the hand of the true and the living God. He says, you know what, I'm going to take up God. And so he says, the Ark of the Covenant will go before you. Remember what's in there, the promises, the provision, the power of all of the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. In other words, everything God is is going before you. Everything God can do is going before you. Everything God will provide is going before you. All the power you need to go is going before you. He will be there before you get there. And interestingly enough, guess what? The ark stays there until everybody crosses. He's there after you leave. Amen? You get the picture? That's God working in your life, in my life. He gets there before you get there. He stays there while you're there. You're there, And he stays there after you leave. Because he is everywhere at once. He's there all day, every day. He doesn't sleep, he doesn't slumber. And now therefore take yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe, and it shall come to pass that as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest upon the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, and the waters that come down from upstream, and they shall stand up as in a heap. I can tell you that took a lot of faith for anybody to believe that. They were not sitting there looking at that mile-wide stretch of raging brown water that was now all over the valley floor going, you know, I'm just pretty sure this is all going to wall up over there and it'll be okay. They had to trust God that he was going to do what he said he was going to do. It's where this touches our lives. You've got to trust God that he will do what he has said he will do. He will never leave you nor forsake you. You see how this works out? He is your strength and your shield. He is your portion. He is your mighty one. He is the one in whom you can hide and trust. He will supply all of your needs according to his riches and his glory in Christ Jesus. He will never change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you, do you get it? You, you see the picture here? That in order to receive those promises, you need to clean up your act and then take a step of faith into the river. Because you're not going to see God by standing on the river watching everybody else do it. You're going to see God by you putting your feet in the river. And I should be doing it first. The priest should be doing it first. The elders should be doing it first. The leaders should be doing it first. And then as you see that, and you see that God is faithful, your faith grows, and then you put your feet in the river. And then you encourage somebody else to put their feet in the river. And you can talk to Connie. We've been getting the spiritual whooping lately. It's just been like one thing after another. 
But I can tell you this, I'm still standing. I've had some moments where it's just like, okay, I think I can take one more whack to the head. I don't know. But I'm still standing. There is more with us than with them. And if he is for us, who can be against us? For no weapon fashioned against us. You see his promises in play here? No weapon fashioned against you can prosper. If he be for you, who can be against you? And the if there is a statement of certainty. When you look at your Bibles, God's word says, did you know that you're a special treasure above all of the things of the universe? Did you know that all of the earth is his and so consequently whatever is his is also yours? That one day the hills, the earth will melt like wax in his presence, but not you? That's the God who's saying, put your feet in the water. Step out in faith. It's got to be okay. It's all about the Lord. It's definitely not about the messengers, not about me or any other messenger. And so as you see these conditions that they had to fulfill, you see some orders they had to obey, and you see some promises they must believe in order to do what comes finally here in this passage tonight, and that's to walk by faith. You need to do all three of those things. You must acknowledge what God has said. You must clean up your act. And you must then act on what it is that God's told you to do if you want to walk by faith. Because other than that, you're just going to walk by sight. You're going to do what's before you today. Verse 14, and as we finish the chapter tonight. And so it was when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan that with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people and those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan that the feet of the priests who bore the Ark dipped in the edge of the water for the Jordan overflowed its banks at flood stage at the time of harvest that the waters which came down from upstream stood still the waters coming from the Sea of Galilee the Lake of Gennesaret that had traveled across that valley floor at flood stage, walled up. They stood still and rose in the heap very far away at Adam. Adam was the city that was on the western bank. Zeratan was the, the city that was on the eastern bank. They're about 12 miles apart. They're roughly in the same place, directly across, basically from Jericho. And so you can imagine Rahab inside the city having helped the spies looking out with a million people about 12 miles away in a flat valley floor, an alluvial plain, starting to walk across the valley. They get to the Jordan River, which is now six miles from where the city of Jericho stands. And all of a sudden, the River Jordan stops and walls up. They're going, uh-oh. This is not good. Those dudes are carrying some golden box and they're standing in the middle of the river and the river stopped for them. Here's the picture. When you do what God asks you to do, when you're holy as he asks you to be, when you test and see that he is good and he has us walk by faith, you do things that the world cannot explain. And all of a sudden there's somebody else's wall of water that's walled up 
That's because you dared to stick your feet in it. And so he says, from Adam to beside at Zeratan, so the waters went down to the Sea of Arabah, which would be the Gulf of Aqaba, the Sea of Aden, the Salt Sea, which would be the Dead Sea today. They failed. They were cut off, and the people crossed over opposite Jericho. And when the priest stood before the, the, and bore the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of Jordan. And all of the company of Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. And so the picture is this, that when we step out in faith, the world takes notice. When we step out in faith, other believers get strengthened. When we step out in faith, God has a platform from which to be visible. When we step out in faith, we can watch the Lord do miracles. The hard part's taking the first step. Amen? Isn't it? If you walk with the Lord for any time, say amen. Because the hard part's the first step. It's getting your feet wet. And then all of a sudden you do it once, and it kind of gets a little bit addicting, quite frankly. It's like, yeah, let's see what God will do. You find yourself off on mission trips to some place you never thought you'd go. You find yourself in some type of ministry position doing something for the Lord you never thought you could do. And you find that you've affected the lives of other people. Maybe it's one at first. Maybe it's two or it's ten. Maybe it's thousands. But you won't know until you step out in faith. So let's step out in faith. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time tonight. Lord, for the goodness that you've showered upon us, for the miracles that you have already wrought in our lives, Lord. We, we are grateful. We pray that you would encourage us, Lord, to step into those flood waters. God, be unafraid that what will happen to us has any power really to overcome us because if you're with us, there's nothing that can be against us. God, we know you haven't called us to be fools, but for the sake of the gospel. And so, Lord, help us to also have wisdom and discernment, knowledge that our faith as we use it would grow. Bless us, Lord, we pray. Help us to step out in faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.